Steve Andriol's career is focused on the development, application, management of IT in government industry, and most recently in academia. He currently holds the Thomas Lebrecht Professorship at Villanova School of Business. Prior to this role, he worked at DARPA as the director of the Cybernetics Technology Office, supporting the development of ARPANET, the MIT Media Lab enabling spatial data management, and Carnegie Mellon and Yale supporting AI. He was also the SVP and CTO of both Safeguard Scientific and Cigna. He's also been a founder, co-founder, and CEO of several technology consulting companies. Throughout your career, you've looked at how people can use IT to, to drive innovation and change and create value. One of the big challenges is, you know, how do you do that in an established company? First, my first reaction is, how do you how do you do it inside an established company? Is leave the company and do a startup that's maybe funded by the same company because I think there's so many constraints internally, and the in my experience, where you're most constrained is when a company is doing the best financially, yeah. because that that incredible need to subscribe to the principle if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, is just enormous and trying to convince people that there's something wrong with the business model or it needs to be expanded in a certain way, maybe even processes automated if replaced when everything is going well is, is damn near impossible. So I think you know, that sort of a backdrop. If a company's not doing well, in fact, we've collected data at Villanova on this. If a company's not doing well, then fear takes hold. We found that fear was the greatest motivation for digital transformation ever. So I think when there's fear, it's pretty easy, relatively easy, I should say, to innovate. But when there's everything going very well, it's not so easy. So therefore, most of the innovation will come from the outside. You and I were talking uh, a little bit earlier about how Amazon has managed to keep doing this. And you look at people like Microsoft, they were, you know, a leader, they had a challenge for a while, and now they seem to be coming back. Are there any, you know, what's your observation thoughts on that about how, how do you get that edge? Well, I think, you know, in the case of Microsoft, so, so much of it is also leadership, right? There's gotta be a cultural predisposition to innovate and change. And we could have the same conversation about Microsoft during a period of time and IBM under a period of time where they could have innovated and they did, considerably so with Watson and some other application areas and platforms. But by and large, there was this sort of, you know, we used to refer to AI as, you know, the, the AI winter. There was sort of the winter for the many of these companies. And then when you see new leadership come in, then everything changes. Uh, we just completed a lot of research at the university on why do so many technology projects fail? And we came up with three, we didn't come up with, the data suggested three areas. One is lack of talent. So the talent and all the way through, right, not just among the people doing the executing the work, but also the leadership, then the lack of executive support or lukewarm executive support. And most importantly, the wrong culture. So an anti-innovation culture, even though many of these companies don't think that they're anti-innovation. And that's the previous point I made about you know, they, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why do we have to change everything? It's going pretty well. You, you're crazy to do want to do X, Y, or Z. So those three areas explain why the failure rate for these major projects, ERP, CRM, uh, digital transformation, is well over 70%, which is staggering. And of course, the industry doesn't talk much about that. So who's driving and who should be driving some of these transformations? So it all depends 
Avery on the kind of company we're talking about. If we're talking about a company like an insurance company that's well-established, that's making a lot of money, which described Cigna when I was there. Um, back to my previous point, there's not a huge appetite for change and innovation. So who's driving it there? Uh, this is gonna sound like a somewhat flip answer. Who's driving it there is the other companies. In other words, if Aetna does something <laughs> that looks like it might in any way, shape or form, threaten the market or make them more profitable, then there's always people looking at what are they doing and how are they doing it? Sticking with healthcare for a sec, because it's <laughs> such a huge portion. Of, well, it's such a huge portion of the U.S. economy is the healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it's a deeply conservative industry. Um, yet digital has got enormous potential to revolutionize the industry. So, you know, how do we reconcile these two truths, right? It's a huge industry that is very conservative, yet it's a large portion of everything of everything we spend, and digital could make a difference. So how do we square that circle? So several things. You you wait for pandemics <laughs> because <laughs> they can be they can be extremely helpful in, in seriously in disruption. So if you look at healthcare over the past year, two years, and certainly ongoing, you're going to see an awful lot of change. You know, telehealth, yep. personal medicine. Uh, the use of a variety of wearables, you know, so you've got all kinds of things that are sort of um, some of those existed before, but the acceleration of their adoption has been enormously, enormously influenced by the need to be remote, right? So uh, I, I, I mean, that's a, that's one part of it. The other part of it is you've got to sell ROI around cost savings to that industry, and one of the things I've learned in various positions is. You build your political capital internally by first saving money. After you've done that, then you can turn to some, you know, perhaps some revenue generation ideas. And when you can do that, that has to all be done as a kind of prototyping exercise, phase one, phase two, phase three, sort of, you know, walk before you run because you'll never sell in those kinds of companies, healthcare, conservative, insurance, same same kind of company, you're never gonna sell them on any kind of disruptive change, unless again, there's a pandemic gun to their head. It's interesting, you know, one of the things the pandemics also caused is a lot of, um, you know, mental stress on people um, across the board. And there's been a growth of a whole set of mental health apps, things like Calm and Headspace, uh, but then a whole bunch of questions about reimbursement and how you do treatment. Um, so what are your thoughts about how healthcare providers could provide virtual mental health resources to, you know, their patients using digital channels? Same argument. I think that you have to prove to them that by doing this at this point will save you money longer term. It's got to be a cost argument. It's just got to be because they're so reluctant to tap into anything that may add expenses, increase expenses. So there's so many arguments like that, even though we tend to resist arguments like that, even when the data is compelling, you know, pay me now, pay me later, pay me later is a much bigger bill, but so many companies still resist that. You've got to show the data that this makes perfect sense for us to do it now and not later because we're going to pay a whole lot more later on. One of the things I, I'm really taking away from you, and it's a hard thing to do, which is to really put yourself in the position of that other person and what's their goal and how can how can your initiative serve their goal? Is that a, is that a good oh, way? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I, I tell my students at the university, when they begin their careers, look for the so-called influence, influence paths in the company. Who has control? Who has the power? Decisions and making power. Then ask what motivates them. 
So you've got to get inside their heads to the extent possible, right? So careers that are just minted are hard to do that, but your question is exactly right. That's, you've got to get inside and understand what motivates each of the stakeholders. And the stakeholder motivation and incentives therefore change dramatically. More, more recently now, I'll go into the company on a consulting project and I'll say, I want to meet with the CEO. What do you want to meet with the CEO for? I want to see if they're really aligned with this, if they're really that interested in this, because I'm being brought in to help you think through a major project. And I know from experience that that CEO is not going to support this, then there's a problem. And I, I will tell you, based on many conversations like that, I'd say less than half were a clear go. Um, I'm with you all the way. They even half, less than half understood the project and its potential. Um, somehow someone convinced them to write a big check, great. But you know damn well that, that if something goes wrong, they'll pull that check unless they truly believe in the project and they understand it. And they, they accept the, the, the transfer, the transformation possibilities around. In fact, they welcome it. If that's not true, then the project, as soon as it hits the first, as soon as the first hiccup, they'll, they'll withdraw support. Um, any parting, parting thoughts or even better, some sneak peeks from your book, The Digital Imperative, that's coming out later. <laughs> any teaser well, for that? One of the things, and I've done a, a few pieces for Sloan and a few other places, I, I'm really absolutely convinced that and I, I work with more companies than less that believe that the technology is really kind of the last competitive advantage. And that there's a seamlessness now between business models and processes and technology. They cannot be separated. Mm -hmm. So not in the 21st century and not forever. So this is, you know, I've been waiting a lot of decades to say this, right? So you have no choice now but to invest in technology in a very big way, but you have to do so in a very informed way. This requires different talent. This requires different commitment. This requires an ongoing agility around corporate culture, which is very difficult. But I think we're there. I don't think we're ever going to go back. I mean, all the arguments about, you know, remember the way back when there was a, a thing published um, but an article called IT Doesn't Matter. I think that was back in the 90s. Um, and, you know, that was very controversial at the time. People said, well, you know, it probably does matter. Now IT is the business, yeah. right? It is the business. So I think I've been waiting a long time to be able to say that and have data to support that. Um, and now it's like, so the, the, you know, the big reveal of a book like that is here's all the evidence that if you don't have a really good handle on technology, the very best technologists, and a commitment to continuous transformation, you're gonna you're gonna fail. Well, thank you very much for for the time. And you know, again, for all you people viewing, uh, if you're interested in being involved with DTV, please uh, please email us. This is a regular channel, and we look forward to continuing to bring great people like this to give you insights about digital technology. Thank you for your time. Thank you.